In this episode of Boss Files. It's been so much fun to um, have grown up together and to be building these companies together and to really live it together. We're both building businesses and they're at different stages, but the demands and a lot of the challenges and a lot of the ups and the downs are very, very similar. Neil and Rachel Blumenthal. The two are highly successful entrepreneurs and they're married. Neil Blumenthal is the co-CEO and co-founder of eyewear company Warby Parker. Since its launch nearly 10 years ago, the brand has grown to a current valuation of $2 billion. And as your smart wife just put it to me, that makes you a double unicorn. <laughs> right? She, she, she's my hype man. <laughs> What's it feel like to be a double unicorn? Uh, you know, it, that's sort of an external marker and uh, certainly uh, is validating. But uh, at the end of the day, what's great is that the larger we scale, uh, the more good we do. How his wife, Rachel, not only helped get Warby Parker off the ground, she's founded three startups of her own. Most recently, she's the founder and CEO of children's apparel maker Rockets of Awesome. She tells me how different her experience fundraising was from her husband's. It was shocking to me going through the capital raising process with venture capital funds um, that I was being asked questions that were directly related to being a woman. Well, also the craziest question you'd often get asked is, well, for how long do you plan on doing that, this? And, and that's something that Jeez. nobody in a million years would a ever ask me or my co-founders. Ever. Ever. How Rachel says she navigates these sexist questions while fundraising. Plus, what is the most important piece of data each of their companies have on us, their customers? And do they plan to take their companies public? And balancing it all while raising two young children together. Here is my conversation with Neil and Rachel Blumenthal. Hi, guys. Hi, Neil and Rachel Blumenthal. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Let's begin with the 30-second elevator pitch if our listeners are just joining us and they don't have two little kiddos like you and I do, Rachel. The 30-second elevator pitch for Rockets of Awesome. Yeah, Rockets of Awesome is a kids' apparel brand for boys and girls, sizes 2 to 14. And we sell direct-to-consumer both through a subscription as well as an e-commerce experience. And we design clothes that are really fun and fashionable, but really comfortable to wear and very accessible price point. So 16 to $38. I think from all the research I've done, it's as much a data company and a tech company as a fashion company. Is that fair to say? Very. So I, we always say that we're half data and technology and sort yeah. of data science and half brand. 30-second elevator pitch to you, Mr. Warby Parker. <laughs> um, uh, we sell prescription glasses and sunglasses starting at $95. That would typically cost you know, $500 plus. And for every pair of glasses we sell, we distribute one to someone in need. And we've now provided over 5 million pairs of glasses to people in need around the world. So drum roll here for people who may not know why I'm interviewing you together. Why is that? Because you are? Well, we're married. <laughs> And, and we're best friends. We've known each other for over 20 years. And, bus and, 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 and business partners at times, or helping build each Unofficial other. Unofficial business partners. Business. Exactly, unofficial at times. Advisors. Yes. What would you say, Rachel, is your, you've built three companies, by the way. This is just the most recent. What's your North Star? Um, it always changes based on what I'm building, but I'd say what's... Um, what is sort of aligned with all of those is just the passion. And so really being incredibly passionate about a problem that I'm trying to solve for the consumer and stopping at nothing to solve it. What's your North Star, Neil? Um, I want to change the world uh, in, in a positive way. And I know that sounds trite, but I don't know uh, how else to describe it. And right now, one of the ways to do that is, uh, is through glasses and, and vision. Um, and our hope with Warby Parker is that not only can we hopefully solve this challenge of literally about a billion people around the planet don't have access to glasses, which is crazy because the technology is about 800 years old. So we're failing as a species when yeah. we're not able to, to make that widely distributed. Um, but also to demonstrate that companies can scale, they can be profitable, they can do good in the world, and they don't need to charge a premium for it. So our hope um, is to provide vision to the world, both literally and figuratively. Last I checked through um, 
the work that you do outside of your core business, the Pupils Project, about five million eyeglasses have been given away. Is that right? That's right. Uh, and that's uh, all around the world and including here in the U.S., um, in New York City and in mm. Baltimore. Um, so in New York City, we're in over 250 schools, um, making sure that kids are getting the eye exams they need. And then we actually design glasses that um, they can choose uh, because we think that everybody deserves to be treated with dignity. Um, and we know if the glasses don't look good, people aren't going to wear you gotta them. got to like wearing them especially for kids, right, if they're insecure about it. So Warby Parker's current valuation is about $2 billion. And as your smart wife just put it to me, that makes you a double unicorn, (laughs) right? She's my hype man. (laughs) What's it feel like to be a double unicorn? Uh, You know, it... That's sort of an external marker and uh, certainly uh, is validating. But uh, at the end of the day, what's great is that the larger we scale, Mm -hmm. uh, the more good we do uh, in terms of glasses provided to people in need, in terms of our core consumer and how they're saving money, in terms of the people that we're able to hire and enable them to learn and grow. Um, So um, it's uh, a milestone in some respect, but, you know, we've talked more internally about the fact that we now have, you know, 2,000 employees, the fact that our net promoter score, a measure of customer satisfaction, um, has been in the 80s since we launched, which is, you know, uh, higher than a- any company that we know of. How, well, who rates that? Um, so, uh, Bain and Company sort of yeah. developed the methodology, right? You ask somebody, how likely are they to refer a product or service to a friend? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we survey our customers, mm. uh, and we do it at a bunch of different intervals, so that way we understand the impact of time on that experience. So, for example, if you uh, survey somebody within 24 hours of visiting our store, you know, they might not have gotten our product yet, so mm-hmm. we're really looking at the store experience. If we uh, survey them within uh, a week or two, we know that they've now gotten their product. If we in, we survey them a couple months later, you know, probably shipping times is less important. And it's more about sort of the product quality and yeah. uh, how they're using it over time. Rachel, uh, there's no question that Neil would not be sitting here today having built this with his partners if you didn't put him through business school. Can you take us back there? <laughs> but I, I say this because when he and I met um, almost a year ago now, and I said, I really want to interview you and Rachel together. He, he was like, well, okay, that's interesting, but, and he was really concerned that given all you've done and all you've built and your incredible success as an entrepreneur, sometimes people will categorize you as Neil Blumenthal's wife. And he really didn't want that to be the case, which made me want to interview. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's always been my biggest cheerleader. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that's a really simple way, right? And it's an easy way for people to sort of categorize. And a lazy way. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, through my career, particularly as Warby has had success and um, had the notoriety that it's had, people often look at me and say, like, well, why are you even bothering? Or, really? you know, why do you, why do you need to do this? And oh. um, it's not about needing to do it. It's about wanting to do it. And, and it's being about being it. passionate and wanting to drive impact. Um, but... You know, Neil and I were dating when I launched my first business, and he was the one that really sort of like pushed me over the edge to set up shop in my living which room, was jewelry. which was a jewelry company. And which is a great um, product that that people loved, right? Yeah. Was was that meeting with a editor with Lucky Magazine? Yeah. So yeah. Lucky Magazine featured me, and we um, we were in about 500 retailers worldwide. Um, did private label for American Eagle, Target, and J. Crew. We were named Oprah's favorite things. Wow. Um, so it was a it was a significant business, yeah. and um, I learned through so much through that journey. I was really young when I launched it, and. Um, you know, I hit a learning curve at around the point that Warby was getting going. And I think what was so exciting for me was being able to follow them to every tech conference that they would go to and really feel like I was learning again. And that was when um, I started to come up with sort of the next ideas for the next businesses that I've built. Which also sort of progressed as you guys became parents. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the second business was a business called Cricket Circle, which was inspired by having our kids and or our first and um, noticing that there were so many products to decide what you buy. And, so many. I just um, bought a double stroller yesterday and was like overwhelmed. With yeah. The and, and you're an experienced parent. Yeah. So being overwhelmed by picking out that <laughs> stroller, imagine a first time parent. Um, and so it was essentially a cliff notes of what to buy when you have a baby and editorialized content to help that parent um, sort of navigate that 
that world of products. Um, but ultimately what we learned through that was that there was an ongoing and much larger pain point in the fact that our kids outgrow our clothes so quickly um, and with such volume. And there was a real opportunity to make that life easier of that consumer and yeah. really be a solution for them. That eventually was built into your company now, which you've raised $50 million, Yes. right? Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk about the fundraising because something tells me that this double unicorn over here, i.e. your husband, has not had as hard a time <laughs> as you have raising money, Rachel. You've talked about being shocked and disappointed by, quote, some of the most overt sexist questions that you would receive. What were those questions and who asked them? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, men and women, actually. Really? So I think that's probably even the more surprising. But um, yeah, I mean, I think what was so shocking to me is that, you know, I always grew up for whatever reason, thinking that I could do whatever I wanted to do and build, um, you know, a company or, or be whatever I wanted to be. And it was never about gender. And um, it was shocking to me going through the capital raising process with venture capital funds um, that I was being asked questions that were directly related to being a woman, you know, whether it was, um, you know, they'd say, so, you know, you're a single founder, meaning I didn't have a co-founder um, and you're a mom. And they'd sort of, you know, a long pause. And I'd, I'd let that and. long pause happen because I wanted them to feel awkward about it. Um, and then they'd say, so, you know, how, how, you know, how do you spend your time? Or, um, you know, what is, what is sort of your commitment to this business? And I would look at them and, and I would really extend that awkward pause because I wanted them to sort of feel and understand that that was a ridiculous question. Um, and for anyone that knew Neil and knew what he was building with his co-founders, I'd say, well, exactly how Neil does. And they'd sort of feel, you know, that was awkward and, and a non-response. they felt some shame. Yeah. And, and then they'd look at me and I'd say, well, you know, this is my business and I'm building and I'm committed to it. And, you know, basically what kind of question is that? Well, also the craziest question you'd often get asked is, well, for how long do you plan on doing that, this? And, and that's something that Jeez. nobody in a million years would a ever ask me or my co-founders. Ever. Ever. Has anyone apologized? No. Wow. I don't know if anyone even acknowledges that they ask those questions. I, I'm surprised women ask them as well. That was surprising to me. Um, and, you know, I would I would hope to believe that that's changed in the last several years. You know, that was probably four or five years ago when I was being asked those questions, maybe more. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the sexism does go both ways, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was definitely asked probably once by a woman and many, many times by men. What did you think when, I don't know, she came home, called you, I'd probably call my husband screaming, like, <laughs> I can't believe this happened right. to me. What was your reaction? That it, I mean, I, obviously you know it exists, this sexism in yeah. the VC world, but having your wife and, and best friend and this talented entrepreneur experience it, what was that like for you? Uh, in incredibly frustrating and you feel a sense of helplessness, right? And the whole reason why one's an entrepreneur is almost to gain control over what you can accomplish. Yeah. Um, it, it was just wild. Um, the, the, and I think, you know, to Rachel's credit, just gave her more motivation, right? To how can I build this faster, more capitally efficient so that way um, I don't have to sort of go through this. I know it's funny. It was almost like I wasn't phased by it. Like really? I was like, oh, this is happening. What people say could happen is happening. And I think I almost liked the challenge. Like, I think I was like, yeah, like ask me that like, question. And like, I'm going to show you, you know? Um, versus being sort of frustrated or felt like I was like knocked down. Mm -hmm. At the same time as you're raising so much money, you don't know what to do with it. I mean, you don't, you, you don't need any more money. Yeah, we, we've raised close to $300 million and we're in a cycle now where um, every VC is trying to deploy more and more capital. You don't want it. Uh, and, and we don't want it. Thankfully, we're profitable now <laughs> or free cash flow, positive. Um, and yeah, now just extra capital is probably just dilutive. Well, right. You have to be careful in raises, right? I mean, and you've talked about this, Rachel. I was reading something where you said too much capital can be a detriment. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, there's something that's perceived as really sexy about raising venture capital and sort of it legitimizes you. And in some respect, it does legitimize you, but um, it's not always the answer. And I think you you can get ahead of yourself. More money, by the way. Right. And, you know, (laughs) you own less and the expectations are higher. And um, it certainly changes sort of the game that you're playing. Where are you both on an IPO trail? I think we both view an IPO as a financing event. So uh, if you don't need the capital, then it's really not you know, something that you want to rush towards. Do you think Warby Parker will ever be a public company? I think potentially. You know, we, we definitely want to be an independent company because we think that independent companies have the ability to have the greatest impact. Um, and well, you're not as independent if you're public. Um, true, but, but more independent than if we were acquired by somebody. That's true. So I see what you're saying in that way. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think what's nice about being private also is that um, it enables us to sort of take a longer term horizon uh, to, to some yeah. respect. Uh, the, the question is that um, right, there haven't been many companies of Warby Parker scale that's raised as much capital as we have that have stayed private. I over was a just going to say those investors come calling. Yeah. Right. So who would want to buy you the most? Would it be like a Luxottica? Uh, potentially. We haven't really engaged in, in many conversations with them. Um, and I think they're having some challenges at yeah. the moment with their merger with, with Essilor. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we haven't really uh, enabled those mm. conversations to happen because we're, we're not that interested. We want to build uh, a brand um, that is independent and has a lot of influence. I assume they've called, but you maybe haven't called back. Uh, we had a funny interaction with the <laughs> former CEO a couple of years Just ago. Just guessing here. <laughs> well, what happened? Um, he talked at us for 45 minutes straight. Really? And then, yeah, um, it was pretty demeaning. And then his first question to us 45 minutes into the conversation was, well, what are you trying to do? Um, and I kind of looked at him, smiled and said, oh, we're trying to build the world's biggest optical company, <laughs> which, of course, they are. We're trying to take over your business. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like laughing because I said it half seriously, half joking. Um, he didn't find it very funny. That's funny to me. I mean, I think the similarities between the two of us is just that we're so passionate about what we're building. And so we haven't entered these businesses saying, here's a market opportunity that we, you know, believe is, you know, a massive moneymaker. And that's the reason we're going after it. We've both entered these businesses because we're obscenely passionate about what we're building. And want to solve real problems. Yeah. And, you know, I think the belief is that if you build it and you build something aligned with your values and where you see the opportunity, then there'll be lot, lots of opportunities when you want them. You're certainly not racing toward an IPO. We are not. Now, after the break, we asked Neil and Rachel if they see Amazon as a threat or opportunity. Stay tuned. Talk to me a little bit about deliberate serendipity. You know what I'm talking about? This is a word I hear you guys use. What is that? You know, uh, an example would be um, going to Wharton and meeting my co-founders, Jeff, Andy, and Crappy Dave. Crappy little business. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, uh, you know, Dave uh, complaining that he just lost a $700 pair of glasses in the seat pocket of an airplane, um, talking to me about it and Jeff and Andy. Um, and of course, I had spent five years running a nonprofit that would train low-income women in the developing world to start their own businesses, um, uh, selling glasses in their communities where people are living on less than $4 a day. Um, and. Uh, right, without that experience, right, I don't think Warby Parker exists. Um, and so but serendipitous that's something... that that happened, that he lost a $700 yeah. pair of glasses. Not sure what he was doing with a $700 pair of glasses, <laughs> but I'll put that aside. Um, but the deliberate part of it is the acting on it. Right. And, and the fact that right here, um, I had sort of early in my career decided to follow my passion and, and go work at this uh, nonprofit social enterprise um, that was effectively a startup. I was a second employee um, and, and learned a lot. And uh, there were people on the board of directors of this nonprofit that were senior leaders in the optical industry. Um, so when we started working on Warby Parker, here were people we were able to call. Um, and I think because uh, I had also developed a lot of goodwill from working really hard and, and accomplishing the goals of, of the nonprofit. Uh, right, uh, these uh, board members were willing to take our calls and, and help us. Can I ask you if 
So all, all the evidence shows, as you guys know from studies, that companies that have um, women in the C-suite or, you know, equal amount of women in leadership do better. You're uh, uh, founded by all men. I'm interested in if whether you think Warby Parker would have been even more successful had you had a female co-founder or a roadblock that you hit that you think maybe we wouldn't have if we had been had a woman founder with us. Uh, I- I think so. I think we would have grown even faster. Um, And one of the things that we found was that in the first couple of years, our customers were majority male. Um, whereas the industry is majority female. Now that has corrected, um, but I think some of that was because there were four male founders. So could we have grown faster? Uh, Absolutely. Um, You know, one of the things that we take a lot of pride in is that um, our uh, management uh, team is majority female. Um, Your management team is? Yeah. Did you have anything to do with that? Did you ever advise him on that? (laughs) (laughs) No, he's a feminist. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah, it's core to who he is. Yeah. I've always had strong women in my life. She makes fun of me that my mom still runs my life. <laughs> well, I did read something about your mom, like bringing snacks over to you guys in the apartment or something when you were starting. She the also company. still buys us toilet paper. Okay, well, I would <laughs> fun fact. That, right? yeah. yes. As busy working parents, it's nice when someone brings you toilet paper. It's true. I, I know. Like, I now really value that toilet <laughs> paper in my house. <laughs> um, Cheryl Sandberg famously um, wrote about, obviously, lost her dear husband. Dave, and and I'll never forget when I read this. She wrote it a long time ago. The most important career choice you'll make is who you marry. I have an awesome husband. We are 50-50. Do you agree with that? I do. Um, It's funny. You know, when we got married, there was sort of this running joke among Neil's friends, like, who the hell, like, why is she marrying him? Because, you know, here he was working nonprofit, going to third world countries, and I don't remember the exact joke that your friends made, but basically saying, you know, I was featured in Vogue and all these magazines. And, and you I know, was popping Cipro to fix, uh, you know, his stomach, um, stomach issue. Um, <laughs> and I had no idea what he was going to do with his career, but I knew it was going to be amazing. Um, and I just believed in him and I didn't need anything else. And I think it's been so much fun to... Um, have grown up together and to be building these companies together and to really live it together mm-hmm. um, because there's so much history and there's um, there's so much partnership in, in doing that together. I mean, marriage is a partnership. Raising kids is for sure a partnership if you're going to make it through and, and building the companies you are is a partnership. I was very struck, Rachel, when you said we never make each other feel guilty. It's, I mean, it's, it's struck a yeah. chord with me because I can't say that I'm always the best at that with, with balancing work and marriage and kids. And I'm working on it. But how do I you do that? I think we're just so fortunate that we live very, very similar lives, but we live our own independent similar lives. Um, and what I mean by that is that we're both building businesses and they're at different stages, but um, the demands and a lot of the challenges and a lot of the ups and the downs are very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just constantly understand what each other are going so through. So give me an example, because I, my husband and I were looking at our schedules this week. And I try to not do a ton of evening things. I have early mornings, but I also like to be with the kids at night because I miss them every morning coming in for my show. Um, but this week I have three, three things. And I, I, I need to be at some and I want to be at others. And, you know, next week he's in London. And it's just sort of this give and take. We try not to both be gone if we can, can prevent it. Um, Give me an example of what Yeah, when. I think it's everything from sort of, you know, the nighttime, sort of either the things that you want to do or the things that you have to do, um, to even, you know, coming home and being like, oh, my God, I'm dealing with this people issue within the organization, or I'm trying to restructure, you know, an area of the org. How did you guys think about it? Or how would you have this conversation? Or, you know, there's never why do you have to go to X? Um, because I know why I make those decisions to go to those things. And I believe they're probably for very similar reasons that he chooses to. Although if it is something that we've both been to and we both know sucks and the other one's still going, then it's like, (laughs) why are you doing that? (laughs) Yeah, so when when our son was born, um, day eight of him being born, Neil had to go to this really important conference. 
And so Warby was very, very early on. We had just had a baby. And I was like, yes, you have to go to that conference. It's really important. You should go. Um, I mean, I later found Good out that you. it was basically a booze cruise. Uh. Um, and so... <laughs> he needed a drink he doesn't after need, eight days. Yeah, he doesn't really need to go to that one again. Um, <laughs> But, you know, at, at the time... A lot of fun, a lot of good networking. <laughs> a lot of networking. No, I mean, no, I think that is, you know, I think that's why Sheryl Sandberg said the most important career decision. Because how can you succeed in your job if you know that your spouse is at home sort of stewing over when you're going to be back, right? Right? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, probably more recent example is that we just uh, had spring break with the kids. Um, and we get to the airport um, and we're trying to check in and we couldn't, they wouldn't print... Uh, Rachel's ticket. Um, it was oh, yeah. because her passport had expired. Oh. Um, and I was like, surely you don't know how to read a passport. <laughs> oh, God. And he's like, I hope no, you apologize. It's to expired. Them. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I think to your point, I didn't make Rachel feel, feel guilty about um, that. Um, but I think it was probably more that I was also uh, so grateful that it wasn't my passport that was expired <laughs> because that's more likely to happen to me. And Rachel got her. three days alone. It was the most magical three days of my life. <laughs> I have to say, I or, recommend anyone sort of have an expired passport by accident or, or by parents purpose. parents need to be honest about that. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Like it, was, it was actually the most bizarre feeling ever to have three days where nobody needs you. Nobody's waiting on you. You have nothing to do. I just walked. It was just walked around. I just walked around. Yeah. It was so nice. But it's funny. I, I texted him probably at the end of that first day. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I screwed that up so bad. And his response was, don't be sorry. We live really busy lives. And it's, you know, we, first of all, I was so grateful because I would have been much harder on him than he was on me. I know. I think um, I would have too. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been like, what's wrong with you? I know. Um, I think I've done that to my poor husband. For a passport. <laughs> Sorry, honey. No, but it's true. I think that, that that goes so far. All right, let's talk a little bit about data and competition, Rachel. Um, Amazon, threat or opportunity? Opportunity. Why? Um, I don't think I know that they don't value or appreciate the importance of a brand and a relationship with a customer. And, you know, I experience, I, I, I've spoken about this a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But then I experienced this as a customer, and I'll give you a very concrete example, okay. which is that um, I had to buy a Halloween costume. And so I was trying to piece together different pieces. Like I needed a brown skirt and a brown sweater and for a Halloween costume. Um, and I was shopping on Amazon trying to find them because I didn't, I just wanted the cheapest thing. Um, but at the same time, what I realized in shopping for that brown cardigan was that I had, you know, 50,000 options in front of me. And I had no data points for which to make the decision as mm. a consumer because I didn't know any of the brands. I didn't know anyone who had purchased this item before mm. and that lack of consumer data points from a emotional perspective mm. was really challenging me a consumer I didn't I couldn't make a decision whereas if there are a number of brands that you're familiar with and you say I'm gonna go buy a white t-shirt do I buy it at Everlane do I buy it at Gap do I buy it at James Purse you have consumer data points for which mm -hmm. to make a decision so you spoke at length about Amazon in this business of fashion interview, and you said something that struck me, that you, your customers are not as afraid to share their data with you as they are with Amazon. Now, what's interesting to me is that customers to do business with you have to share data about their children, mm -hmm. which we're all sort of freaked out to do, even though we post our kids all over Instagram, so whatever. <laughs> but then you ask them for, you know, pe people ask, you ask for data on their kids and they might be more reticent. What tells you that people are not as afraid to share it with Rockets of Awesome? Like, how do you actually know that? So customers are sharing about 40 data points with us, very specific personal data points about their kids when they onboard onto our experience. Um, and after that, they continue to share data points. So it's not just a one and done, but it's every time they return a product, every time they keep a product, when they continue to shop. And then it's endless sort of, I call them diary entries of emails that they'll send us, including photos of their kids, where they'll tell us stories on end about how their kids felt, what they experienced wearing 
wearing our clothes, um, their conversations that they had together, what they're doing with those clothes. Um, they even let their kids write in personal letters directly to us, sharing experiences that they've had wearing the clothes and how they've made them feel. And you know, more than anything, that's representative of us building trust with that consumer and building a brand that really resonates and aligns their personal values with the brand that we've built and our brand values. Um, and I think that is so core to any business that you're building. Uh, Jeff Bezos hasn't failed at much. I mean, he's failed at things within Amazon for sure, but sort of big picture, long game here. Do you think Amazon just doesn't get it on that front? I just don't think they're prioritizing it. I'm not saying that they're incapable, right? They've proven that they are, you know, superpowers yeah. at so many things. Um, but I just don't know that they've prioritized it, and I question mm. whether they value it. What do you think, Neil? Amazon, to you, threat, do you agree with her and threat or opportunity in your space? Um, it's uh, opportunity in some respects, like Amazon Web Services, frankly, saves us, finds ways to save us money versus other cloud uh, computing offerings, um, their core business of, of selling things. Um, you know, we sell a pretty complicated product um, with glasses. Uh, you know, we um, offer prescriptions. We've invested a lot in virtual try-on so people can try on um, their glasses using the Warby Parker app. We have a prescription check app where you can uh, figure out exactly what your prescription is. So we're a thousand percent focused on, on this um, challenge. Uh, and uh, Amazon is wonderful at doing a lot of things, but I think when it comes to like these branded, really special experiences, yeah. um, that's not uh, as much their strength as we've seen, I think, in fashion broadly. And also, we're both operating in really large categories, right? Apparel um, and, and eyewear, and there's room for Amazon to continue to grow and be great, but yeah. still there's room for us to do the same as well. Well, what, what also interests me is the rental business and the rental economy, which, I mean, for example, Rent the Runway Kids just launching. Um, I'm interested in your take on what that means for your business. Are you nervous about that? Are you going to get into the rental business? Whereas for you, I don't think anyone's going to rent their prescription eyeglasses. Right. 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 <laughs> so <laughs> you're I like, hope not. phew, I'm okay oh, yeah. on that front. Get what like about pink you? Eye or something. Yeah, I think that I'm really excited to see what that opportunity looks like for them. Um, I think that they're doing it in a really smart way where they're renting really, really expensive dresses and sort of suiting for kids where you know, most people are not going to purchase a $600,000, $900,000 dress for their two-year-old, right? Cor that's correct. Um, <laughs> so I think that that's really smart. And that's something as a consumer that I would rent and I would do for my kids. You, because are you, are you interested in getting into the rental space? No, I mean, we're really in the business of selling you clothes that your kids wear every single day, day in and day out. Um, and for those clothes, they're destroying them. And so those are not clothes where Which you I can Which I would like to them, send them right? back. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. But we're really sort of in the um, very practical everyday clothing business where we want to be a solution for your everyday life. Um, I think we stretch a little further than every day. So, you know, that sequin skirt you can wear from the playground to dinner and then toss it in the wash. Um, but, you know, that's, that's really our focus on making clothes incredibly accessible to our consumer. More from my conversation with Neil and Rachel Blumenthal after the break. One headline about you, Rachel, that struck me. This woman founded three startups and learned her most valuable trait, being naive. Is that true? It is. Um, I think that being naive and being sort of less focused on what everybody else is doing, less focused on how you're supposed to do it or how the competition has done it, has really enabled me to build things that are special and different and to be just deadly focused on the problem that I'm trying to solve and the consumer I'm trying to solve for versus being sort of caught up in what everybody else is doing. Right. And, and I uh, wonder about for you, and I thought of the you know experience you had at Wharton where I think you guys went to one of your professors and said, we're going to sell these eyeglasses for 45 bucks. And he was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but that's naivete in a sense, right? Definitely. And, and I think that beginner's mindset is super helpful because it, you don't have any um, uh, legacy ideas that may have run their course and aren't yeah. best for the customer. Um, so, yeah, when we approach that um, 
professor, you know, here we told him we're going to sell uh, $500 glasses for $45. And he laughed at us because he said it's outside the realm of possibility uh, or believability that you could sell a product for a tenth of the cost and have it be the same uh, level of quality. And frankly, price is the biggest indicator of quality to con in a consumer's mind. So, you know, I think our thinking was still right and that we want to radically reduce the price. Um, uh, but we needed some expertise mm. to help optimize for that. And of course, we did some surveys of potential customers. And sure enough, we asked them uh, what was the likelihood uh, to purchase of a bunch of different glasses priced at different price points. And the likelihood to purchase increased with price up until $100, at which point it plateaued and came down. Um, and so we could have done it at $99, but our intuition told us that that sounded too discounty. So that's how we arrived at $95. Um, but every day, um, uh, thankful that we're able to look at something and say, why is it done this way? Right? Mm -hmm. if, if we had grown up within the optical industry, our stores um, would have glasses under lock and key. Um, right? Yeah, you walk into an optical out. shop, right? the glasses and are... There's a Warby Parker right down our block in Brooklyn. And you're able to just go and grab and try on the glasses. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're trying on something, like, do you want to have to ask somebody to unlock no. Uh, something? No, you want to go and grab it. You want it at eye level. You want the lighting to work. You want full length mirrors. Um, these are uh, things that we discovered because we were naive, uh, but it's crazy to us that nobody discovered them in the industry over the last hundred years. Yeah, well, when you, you've got the margins like they were working on and not a ton of competition, you know. Right, right? you're not you forced to innovate. It doesn't force you to innovate. You have made the argument, Neil, that brands can have relationships with people like humans can. And I'm skeptical of that. So, I mean, make the case. How do you really, really, really prove authenticity to people? Um, I think through detail um, and, and, and layers of depth. Uh, right. Uh, as a brand, uh, a brand is a reason for being. Mm -hmm. um, and then every day you have to demonstrate that reason through multiple layers. Um, and uh, you gain trust by giving it away. You can gain trust by being vulnerable. So um, Warby Parker, when we were working on it as students uh, in Philadelphia at Wharton, we were actually working at a Rachel's in my apartment um, and uh, we launched the website, uh, we have this home try-on program, right, where people can select five frames, we ship it to well, them free You didn't even know cost. if the website was going to fully function. Oh. So you didn't even tell your friends and family it was going live, <laughs> yeah. right? Okay, that's how, like, so nervous you were. Yeah. <laughs> we started getting calls, uh, Neil, Dave, Jeff, Andy, did you know your website is live? Um, so, um, yeah, in those early days, uh, we ran out of inventory for our home try-on program, and people started calling up and saying, oh, we heard you're in Philly, can we come to your office? And we're like, oh, we're working out of our apartment, you're more than welcome to, to come in. Um, and we laid the glasses on Rachel and my dining room table, we moved one of her mirrors. Um, Did you think this was crazy? It was so much fun. Okay. It was so <laughs> much fun because they were, they were like, I mean, what, what he didn't mention is the fact that they were all staying up until, you know, they were still in school, right? right. And they're all staying up until crazy hours, 3, 4 a.m., handwriting, you know, three paragraph long emails to every single customer individually, apologizing for the fact that they were out of stock of their home try-in. Wow. I mean, the passion and the commitment to this customer was just like nothing you've ever seen before. So did people come into your apartment? Uh, they did. Um, and of course, they, like they in <laughs> and they were like, what is going on here? And of course, we had some of our first employees working on our couch, responding to customer emails. Um, but some of those initial people were our biggest advocates mm -hmm. because uh, when do you get the chance to peek behind the curtain of a company or a startup? And here we were able to show our warts and all. Um, and now, for example, uh, right, we're a bigger company, we're more polished, but at least sort of we explain not just what we do, but mm -hmm. how and why. You've grown from that apartment to 90 retail locations. You haven't even been to all of them. A number <laughs> of them, right? Yeah, I'm trying to. You guys, in your recent deal, to have, as I understand it, mini stores. Is that correct? Within kids' footlockers? Yeah, so... Is that how this uh, is going to work? It will eventually, yeah. I mean, we're actually really focused on building out our own standalone retail store first. Okay. Um, so we'll be building out be? Um, in New York, okay. in, in the city. Do you know where yet? Have you um, we're trying to find a retail location. If, if the landlord is listening, <laughs> <Come to laughs> please say yes to, to our proposal. Come, come to Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah, but we're hoping to open um, a store in time for back-to-school season 
in downtown yeah. in the city. Okay. So we're really focused and then on the that mini experience. Um, yeah, we're working with our partners at Foot Locker yeah. to explore what that might look like together. The, the reason I bring it up is because there has it was sort of this like shift away from retail to online and now I seem to see and enjoy I like going into stores I also read actual books you know, yeah. but I'm like an old millennial <laughs> but like a shift back to stores is that w- what you're seeing as well I know it's different yeah. for eyeglasses because you have to really want to try them on but, but yeah, what are I you mean, guys seeing I think I think my perception of it and some of the urgency for us is that Um, You know, one, our brand is sort of larger than life and really, really celebratory and fun. And when we look in the environment, there aren't any fun stores to take your kids to go shopping for clothes. You know, it's sort of the tired traditional retailers where your kids sort of roll their eyes and say, oh, like, don't make me go there. Um, And And the dressing room is the same as it would be for an adult. Yeah. And we just see an opportunity to create Hmm. a place and a world and a club where kids and parents want to go and explore and build together. And, and there's definitely going to be a bathroom or multiple. So if my kids say, Mom, sure. I have to go pee, I don't have to like leave the store. With to every find last them, right? thing that you could possibly need to make that experience <laughs> positive. Um, Changing table. Please. Yeah, exactly. Oh, but good. beyond the fact that, you know, we see an opportunity to build something really special and different, mm-hmm. you know, I think in this world where the bar is lower than ever for businesses to sort of pop up with a Shopify site. And I think that's great because it gives lots of entrepreneurs an opportunity to build businesses. Um, I think it creates a lot of noise for the consumer. And I think the consumer needs sort of the brands to, um, you know, give them reason to pay attention and to be public and be in physical environments where it really gives them a halo to say, pay attention to us. We're the ones you should be paying attention to and engaging with. Um, And so I do think that it nudges digital first businesses to do things in physical environments, um, even if that is, you know, a subway ad or taxi TV ad or billboards. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there there's a necessity to go outside of the digital landscape. Is there? Uh, definitely. And I'd add to that probably two points that, that we're seeing. One is that, right, People are launching online uh, because they want to have direct relationships with their customers, and it's actually much easier and cheaper to, you know, launch a website sure. than it is to, to build a store. Um, and then once those businesses are built, um, they're looking to grow, right? And they, and one of their main channels for customer acquisition is spending a lot of money uh, with Facebook and Google um, to attract and acquire new customers. Um, and uh, the challenge with those platforms, and we spend a lot of money on them mm-hmm. to acquire customers, is that um, there are no economies of scale. So the more you spend, the less that marketing dollar becomes efficient and because they're often looking at lookalike audiences so they're looking at who's your existing customer base and who are customers that look like those customers and the farther rings you you go out right it becomes more expensive so now okay is there a cheaper way to uh, acquire customers oh maybe it's actually opening up stores yeah Yeah. Um, quickly on that and then I'll move on Uh, Facebook or Instagram and yes I'm very aware that Facebook owns Instagram but it's a very different shopping experience I have found myself actually buying things off Instagram I never did that before with Facebook I just use it in a different way which is more effective for both of you in terms of actually turning those advertisements into revenue well, we're one of the um, first people that are part of Instagram's uh, beta sort of shopping program that they just launched with a handful of brands. Um, so uh, we just launched it and Is we'll it see working? how it goes. Do you have any um, numbers? Uh, right now, it's too early to say, but we're optimistic. Better than the Facebook experience? Um, I, I think so. Uh, and certainly for a mobile ex- experience, it is. We're waiting for Instagram to let us into that shopping <laughs> experience. <laughs> this is exclusive. Um, but, you think but, but right now for us, it's Facebook. Is it work? Yeah, it does. Yeah. But, you know, it's exactly how he describes it. It's sort of like the drug that never ends. Yeah. Um, the addiction that you mm. want to find an alternative for. Um, I'm interested in the parental leave policy at both of your companies, since you're both parents and founders. And in the startup world, is actually where a lot of my friends who've had kids who work in the startup world have shocked me by saying they actually don't have leave or a very short leave. What is it at both of your companies for new moms and new dads? Yeah. Ours is 10 weeks for Fully both. paid? Yes. Um, and then you can get also short-term disability on, on yeah. top of that. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, our, ours is the same. Um, and For moms and dads. 
Yeah, and, and one of the things that we've seen um, with some startups is that uh, often they're being started by uh, founders that are not yet parents. Oh, I know. I've had friends who founders, and then they become parents, and they're like, oh, no, we need a parental right. leave policy. <laughs> yeah. You know, hopefully they're getting some good advice, uh, either from investors or initial hires, to get that in place as, as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. um, because we don't, um, as a startup community, we don't want to be missing out on amazing talent um, of, of parents uh, because of some short-sightedness. Um, and, and similarly, right, it's, un it's unfair. So um, we're, I think even from when Warby Parker launched nine years ago, we've seen a market shift in mm -hmm. the mentality of startups around parental leave. What is the best advice? I'll ask you both this. I'll start with you, Rachel. What is the best advice that Neil has given you? And what is the worst advice? Oh. Um. You want to both do best advice first? Best <laughs> advice, Rachel. I haven't even gone to the worst advice. Oh, God. Okay. Um, probably the best advice was probably less advice, but more sort of the encouragement to leave my job in fashion that I love so much when I was 23 and, and try this entrepreneurial journey. Um, I probably never would have jumped off the bridge if mm. not for him. So mm. I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, worst advice. Or advice he gave you that you just didn't take. Oh, there's probably a lot of that. <laughs> but uh, No, that's not true. You know, I take, I take a lot of his advice. Um, I feel like sometimes we differ more on, on the the parental sort of like taking care of the kids like you know i think what's been interesting about having kids and a lot of what rockets of awesome stands for is that um there's something really empowering and um about having kids and how they really sort of give you the opportunity to let go and really the permission to let down your guard sometimes and to not have to be sort of that quote unquote perfect parent who does everything, you know, by the book. And sometimes he'll look at me and I'll be sitting on the kitchen floor, like, you know, eating breakfast or eating a meal with our kids. And he'll be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I'm the adult. Like, why can't I make the rules? Um, and so I think sometimes we, we disagree there. <laughs> I just want our kids to have some manners. <laughs> Clearly. And I'm like, they'll learn later. <laughs> I ate dinner last night in my daughter's room, sitting next to her crib, reading her Dragon's Love Tacos, stuffing my face because I was so starving. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that was my night. Exactly. Just, yeah. yeah. We, we do not all do it by the book. What about you? Best advice she's given you and maybe some you haven't taken? Um, she always gives me sound advice about people. Um, she can read people, uh, I think, 10 times better than, than I can. Um, sometimes I'm a little overly trusting. Um, but also just very tactical advice. So, you know, seeing her uh, work as a fashion publicist as Yves Saint Laurent as one of her first jobs, seeing how she grew Rachel Lee jewelry um, uh, through uh, great fashion press uh, had a marked impact on Warby Park because when we launched, we were featured in Vogue and GQ and immediately had fashion credibility, right? We were in the best men's book, the best women's book, um, and that enabled us to launch. Well, you said um, how important it was for you guys to get the, a really good PR person to get into GQ, etc. Yeah. That was big. Yeah, and that and that came from Rachel. And even um, what's the process for doing that? Um, you need a lookbook, and that needs to look amazing. So, right in the startup world, you're often told uh, move fast and break things and minimum viable product. And yes, we are in the tech world, but we're also in the fashion world. And the threshold for vi minimum viability is much higher. Um, so uh, that was a really a great feedback from Rachel early on. Quickly, what is the most important piece of data you each have on your customers? I think ours is probably more the volume of data. We just have, we probably have more customer specific data on specific preferences, shopping behavior, mm. than maybe even the largest children's wear brands. Wow. Because we've been doing it. Well, we've been doing it since the infancy of the business. Um, almost every single one of our customers gets through an entire onboarding process. Um, and we own the end-to-end -end customer experience, right? Whereas a major children's wear brand that, you know, over 50% of their business is wholesale. Um, they, they know nothing about that consumer. And many of those um, businesses were also driven by brick and mortar retail very, very early on, right. where they didn't have systems that integrated um, with their CRM. Just tell you who was buying what. Yeah, exactly. 
most important piece of data? Um, this is going to sound uh, sort of funny, but frankly, email address. Um, and really? you need trust in order to garner that email address because that enables us to ask a lot more questions and, yep. and gather more data. Um, and we found that brands and retailers um, that don't have trust from their customers, they don't get uh, email addresses, even talking to some legacy retailers. I often ask like, hey, what is the most common zip code you get? Because you remember when you used to check out and people would ask you what your zip yeah. code is? Uh, it was 90210, <laughs> right? Because people would just joke around from the TV show. Sure. Um, they didn't want to give you the real one. Yeah. And uh, we only ask for information um, if it's going to make the shopping experience better. Um, and, uh, and our customers now know that and they're willing to share a lot of information because we're constantly making that experience better and better. Do you think this is the last business you will build? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, Warby Parker, every year it, it, it's changing dramatically and, and evolving. Um, and I love it. I, I see myself doing it for decades to come. Uh, might that change? Maybe. Um, I literally can't imagine him doing anything else. But you have started three businesses. So. Yeah, I would probably, I'll do another one. Do I'm another a masochist. <laughs> There you go. I and mean, that's like the only reason you keep doing it, right? <laughs> All right, here's the final question. And you have to answer for one another. So, Rachel, let me begin with you. What do we not know about Neil? What does the world, what do people not know? What has he not said in other interviews? Oh, so much. <laughs> um, he is the slowest nacho maker you'll ever meet. But, that's it, what but you guys precision, fight about but precision. <laughs> there will be the perfect amount of cheese on every single chip. Love that. Yeah, it's the bad when you get to the bottom and there's like just nothing. Yeah. There. <laughs> not do, with Neil's nachos. <laughs> what do we not know about Rachel? That we should. I've been trying to think about this while you were answering the, the question. Um, that um, she is the most efficient person in the history of the world and she can do 10 phone calls and 10 emails um, in the time that it takes me to do one. They say you want me done, ask a busy mom, right? There you go. Good luck, you guys. Thank, Thank you. you for coming in. Thank I you really so appreciate much. It. I'm excited to see where these things go. Thank Thanks you. Again. Thanks yeah, for having us. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.